Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. One of the things we do for our clients is we actually help them niche. And we help our members niche because uh, I'm, I'm totally with you on this. You know, if, if you don't have a niche, you probably don't have a brand. We, we do 200 inbound calls a week. Okay, and these are these are actually scheduled calls. So these aren't 200 inquiries. We, we'll we'll have over a thousand inquiries in a week. These are 200 actually scheduled calls that we're doing with prospective clients. And why is that? Because we have we're <laughs> we're niched. We have a brand. People know what to expect. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. For many CPAs, it feels risky to pick a cross section of the tax code and burrow in. The fear is around losing clients, having to turn people away, and what if there's a recession? Consequently, many CPAs work as generalists and pay the price in the form of seemingly infinite rotations on the hamster wheel. Longtime listeners to this podcast know that I'm a huge proponent of niching because it makes business better and easier to run in countless ways. My guest today has built an exemplary business around expertise in one niche and a few more. And that person is Tom Wheelwright. Tom is a tax and wealth expert, a CPA, and CEO of WealthAbility. He is the best-selling author of Tax-Free Wealth, How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Reducing Your Taxes. And he is releasing his next book this summer titled The Win-Win Wealth Strategy, Seven Investments the Government Will Pay You to Make. He's also the host of two popular podcasts, The WealthAbility Show and The WealthAbility for CPAs Show. His goal is to help people achieve their financial dreams faster by permanently and legally reducing their taxes. Tom Wheelwright, welcome back to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thanks, Geraldine. I love being on your podcast, and I love I, I love your I love your followers, love your listeners, love your people. They're absolutely amazing. Thank you for that, and it is always great to have you. And for listeners who want to catch our previous conversation, it is 178 Killer Niches for CPAs, which sits nice and neatly with a runaway at the top of the download list. So go back and catch that one after you listen to this one. So let's dive in here. Why did you write Win-Win Wealth Strategy? Well, I I think like a lot of CPAs, uh, I got a little tired of the rhetoric about uh, the rich not paying taxes because they're cheating. And I figured somebody needs to step up and talk about how taxes really work and how incentives really work and what the government gets out of it. And so I decided, well, all right, so we sold a lot of copies of Tax-Free Wealth. I've got some authority there. And so it, I figured it was up to me 
to do it. Why, you know, why, why not me instead of somebody else? And so I was started to look at it and uh, it's a fascinating topic. I'll tell you what, it turned out way different than I expected. <laughs> it's just uh, fascinating to see that in most cases, uh, on these different strategies, the government wins more than the taxpayer. So this is not one-sided by any um, way, shape, or form. So that's that's actually why we did it. We just w really wanted to raise a little consciousness at uh, a higher level. Okay. So you want to raise a little consciousness at a higher level, meaning what exactly? Like, who did you want to understand that it was a win-win and, in your words, that the government actually gets more? The average person, right? So, so uh, entrepreneurs already know this, right? Most of them know this. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much the subject of tax-free wealth. Is those people know that, and those are the people who who buy tax-free wealth. But there's a whole group in the middle, and a lot of employees, a lot of people who aren't business owners yet, and they don't know this. And you know, we're never going to convince the the far left. We're never going to convince the AOCs of the world. Um, though I am sending her a copy of my book. We're not going to convince them at least they need to understand what they're saying, okay? So I just wanna show that there's two sides to every coin. This is the other side of this coin. We've heard one side and one side only for the last three years, and it's, I just think it's time to hear the other side is that, look, government tax incentives have been around since the 1950s, actually, and they are around for in all countries. We actually looked at 15 countries, Geraldine, in this book, and we have 150 endnotes for 15 different countries in this book. And uh, what we looked at is, okay, so how does every, you know, the, these other developed countries, you know, whether it's the UK or Australia or France or Korea, how do they handle these tax incentives? And they're remarkably similar. And I just wanted to show that, you know what, this is not a bunch of lobbyists getting together. It's not a conspiracy of lobbyists. This is actually something that started with John F. Kennedy, and he really started big time in the tax incentive world. Um, basically, he, he goes, well, let's see, people hate paying taxes. Will they actually do something if we give them a tax, small tax incentive? And lo and behold, they did. And ever since then, tax incentives have just taken off um, as a way for the government to influence um, investment behavior, basically. And I just want to lay it out, and that's all, and let people see that, you know what, this is, yes, these, these are actually investments the government will literally pay you to make. And in some cases, you are better off making it immediately better off than if you didn't make the investment. And I show a couple of those. And others, they're contributions. But I, I, I do want people to understand that we are partners with the government and we get to choose whether we're a silent partner or whether we're an active partner. Got you. Okay. And in the book, you lay out seven different areas that you focus on that are investments the government wants you to make. I want to specifically focus our attention today on real estate and specifically real estate investing. So I think this is one of many great possible niches for CPAs. It's not for everybody, but certainly if you like real estate investing or if you like working with clients who are real estate investors or you just think the tax aspect is interesting, there's a ton of upside. When it comes to real estate tax, what are some of the most common strategies that you see that you notice CPAs either overlooking or don't even know about? Yeah. So, so real estate, you know, I, I, I love specialties. Real estate's been my, one of my specialties, as you know, um, I'd say probably, uh, throughout the U S and the world, but 
70 to 80% of our, the clients of our network members um, have some type of investment real estate um, besides their home, um, their personal residence, which is we don't really look at as an investment. And the government, since 1981, Ronald Reagan started with the big real estate tax benefits in 1981. I'm old enough to remember that. Basically, what he said was, look, we need housing and we're going to incentivize housing. We need, uh, back then, they needed commercial projects, so we're gonna incentivize commercial projects. We need manufacturing, industrial, so we're gonna incentivize industrial. And so what, when I look at real estate from a tax standpoint, real estate's kind of magic. In um, my first book, Tax-Free Wealth, I talk about the magic of depreciation. I think that most CPAs do understand the idea of depreciation, but I still hear people say, in fact, I was, I was talking to a CPA partner in a fairly sizable CPA firm recently, and I said, you know, one of my clients was involved in uh, a project that they did the K-1 for, the tax return. I said, I've not seen a lot of depreciation here. Did you do a cost segregation? And, and the response was, well, no, because our investors don't get the benefit. I'm just going, okay, so I know half of your investors literally know half of them because I sent them to you. And I know that all of my clients get the benefit. So I think one of the, the, the big misnomers, first of all, is that cost segregation is an aggressive thing to do where you're actually hiring an engineer to go and decide how much of your, of your purchase price goes to land, how much goes to building, how much goes to improvements, land improvements, and how much goes to the contents. I think that the first mis, uh, misunderstanding is that that's aggressive position. Um, technically, what I'd like everybody to understand is that it's technically required by law. Okay, so your basis, okay, is reduced by allowed or allowable. And when you do a cost segregation, that's a change from an incorrect method of accounting to a correct method of accounting. So, I mean, there's a whole IRS audit manual on cost segregations. Here's what you're supposed to do. And, and those are public. So you can get the IRS audit manual and, you know, read it, if, you know, to be comfortable with it. But I'm going, I actually think it's aggressive to not do a cost segregation because I think that the IRS has said, well, okay, we're not going to really reduce your basis, but they could. I mean, that's what the law says. The law says allowed or allowable. So cost segregation is first one. The second one is this whole passive activity area. I think people are very confused with passive activities. They go, well, if I can't be a real estate professional, I can't get my losses. And first of all, that's fundamentally false, okay? Because it's, at, at worst, it's when you get your loss, okay? It's just maybe not today, maybe, you know, a few years down the road. But the other side is, is that in most cases, most of our clients are not just real estate investors, they're also business owners. And when you have that combination, uh, you, once you understand the passive loss rules, which is critical if you're going to niche into real estate. And when I think, by the way, I love your idea of niche because I think of niche and brand, those are the same word right? Uh, if you don't have a niche, you don't have a brand. Yeah, your position in the marketplace and it's your strategy. That, that is your position in the marketplace. Who are you? And why would you want to attract clients that you don't want anyway? So why, why would you want to attract a wide variety of clients instead of attracting just those that you want to work with? I love, for example, I love real estate developers. Okay. They're just so interesting and they're, they're so creative. And, and I love that. And they'll come to me and they'll go, like I had one 
literally, I was sitting across from one yesterday at a, at a mastermind group I was at. He goes, I pay millions of dollars in taxes. He's a real estate developer. I'm going, how are you paying any taxes? And he goes, well, you know, Mike, you know, I, I just, that's, I've been doing this for years. I'm going, we need to talk. And this is the area. So there's so few people, so few CPAs who really understand real estate and they don't understand it because they're not taking the time to niche. You can't be great at everything. So like for me, um, if I get somebody asking me a pension plan question, I'm going to refer that out because I'm not the expert. I am not. If I get somebody ask me an international tax question, I'm going to I'm going to go to one of my network members who understands international, right? Because I don't. Okay, I understand concepts and I probably understand it as well as a lot of people, but I'm not niched in that area. And so, real estate, I'm um, all day long and I'm constantly finding that I have to correct misconceptions. And I think those are the two big the two big ones. One is uh, the cost segregation and the second one is passive activity rules, uh, passive activity rules. They're just so misunderstood that, oh, well, if, if it's passive, I don't get the loss. That is just fundamentally false. The question should always be Geraldine, how do I get the loss? Not do I get the loss? And that's, I think the big question that people are missing is they're missing this. How do I, because right. Our clients are entrepreneurs. They want to know how they can do something. They don't know what they don't want to know what they can't do. Yes. Fundamental belief is how do I make it happen? That's right. How can I make it happen? That, that, that's the key of an entrepreneur. This is possible. We just need to figure it out. Just because it hasn't been figured out yet doesn't mean it's not possible. Okay. Yep. So let's keep talking about niching inside real estate investing specifically because I'm a believer not just in niches, but sub niches, right? And once you get down into it, you see how to go, you know, burrow down in. And the more you burrow into your niche and you're just one and there's nobody around, right? You're in blue ocean and all the... Talk to me about, for listeners who are thinking, I want, you know, real estate investing, real estate, et cetera, is a potential niche for me. What do you think about sub-niches? How does it work when it comes to things like residential that you rent out or fourplexes or vacation home or short terms like Airbnb or flippers, not to mention commercial? Is it possible to sub-niche like that? Or do real estate investors own such a mishmash of properties that you just can't even do that? Well, we, we actually go a step further. Oh, great. Keep going. We actually get our clients to sub niche. Nice. So we actually, we actually work with our clients on what sub niche you're getting into. And we kind of break it down. So if you look at, you start with four asset classes, right? You have business, real estate, paper assets, and commodities. Those are your four asset classes. Now you've got sub asset classes. So in real estate, you have industrial, you have commercial, and you have residential. Those are your sub-asset classes. But then you have your specific asset classes be beyond that. So in residential, you've got single family, you've got multifamily, and you've got the plexes, right? Duplex, four, triplex, and fourplex, which is a, its own little niche. And I, I find that, you know, like, for example, I had uh, was did a webinar with my clients the other day. I had a, a single-family home expert on you know, my clients wanted to hear. They want, they want information on single family homes. I'm going, he was talking about the single family home marketplace from a economic standpoint. Okay. From a rental standpoint, you have, you can actually sub niche within that because you've got the long-term rentals. You've got 
flipping, what you call flipping, which I look at as a business, not investing. I think that's a whole different animal. And then you've got Airbnb, which Airbnb has its very own tax rules. <laughs> it's a very interesting area. And there are a lot of people that are specializing, you know, they get specialized into, well, I, I want to know how much, what, what kind of work do you do in Airbnb? And I don't know that you have to be only one. Um, but I do think if you are going to say that I am an expert on Airbnb, you'd better be an expert on Airbnb um, because the Airbnb rules are not the same rules, particularly in the passive activity area, as the real estate, as, as the long-term rental rules. They're completely different rules um, because it's not even considered rental real estate. Airbnb is not. It's not considered that. So you, you have to know that. And you have to have read the regulations. You have to read the court cases. I think one of the questions, Geraldine, is how much time are you willing to spend really doing a deep dive into the tax law? I've got, I, I, I know a guy that does nothing but cryptocurrency. That's his entire practice. I'm going, that's a deep dive into a very niche, niche area. But he's got a thriving practice on that because how many how many people have that niche, right? Real estate is a very complex area. And so I found that it's odd people come to me and they'll just they they love that I speak their language. First of all, I am a real estate investor. So if you're gonna niche in it, you'd better do it. Don't don't just consult on it. You'd better do it yourself. And uh, you, you know if you're gonna sub niche, then you'd better do that too. So are you matching up CPAs in your network? who are niched into sub-niches with clients who are also niched? Are you mapping those kind of one-to-one? -one? Absolutely, absolutely. To the extent that the clients know that. Yeah. Too many investors think that they're always chasing returns, right? And that's always a losing proposition. You, you, you know, the professional investor makes a single decision and they just apply that decision over and over again. The amateur investor makes a new decision every time they invest. So one of the things we do for our clients is we actually help them niche, um, frankly. And we help our members niche because uh, I'm, I'm totally with you on this. You know, if, if you don't have a niche, you probably don't have a brand. You know, like, I mean, the, the reason we have, we, we do 200 inbound calls a week. Okay. And these are, these are actually scheduled calls. So these aren't 200 inquiries. We, we'll, we'll have over a thousand inquiries in a week. These are 200 actually scheduled calls that we're doing with prospective clients. And why is that? Because we have we're, we're niched. We have a brand. People know what to expect. I, I have to tell you a funny story um, about this. Uh, Geraldine is last week. Now, you know, my wife's also a CPA. She has her own firm and she's very tied into the local CPA society, the Arizona Society of CPAs. And they have this chat room called Listserv. And she sends, sends me this chat and says, I, it, it was a, this um, person who put it in there wanted to know if this was a scam. And, and it was an inquiry from a, a um, real estate investor said, I want to find a CPA who follows Tom Wheelwright's um, way of looking at taxes in tax-free wealth. Okay, can you, you know, is there somebody at, the, um, at your firm who, who does that? <laughs> And I'm going, yes. okay, so you know you have a brand when- You get referred to you by name. <laughs> they refer to you by name, exactly. And, yes. and that comes from that niche. Nation's leading expert in fill in the blank. There you go. Okay, great. I love that. So um, I want to ask you among those niches, is there one of those where you see more opportunity than others or it doesn't matter, just pick one and they're all great? 
you know, it, I always pick something that I like, right? I always, I always think you should pick what you like. So if you like Airbnb, pick Airbnb. If you like industrial, pick industrial. If you like multifamily, pick multifamily. I've kind of fallen in, I, I will admit, I've kind of fallen into the multifamily because I had a lot, a lot of multifamily clients and uh, they're developer clients and uh, then multifamily investor clients. So I kind of get into that niche pretty heavily. But I have enough clients in the Airbnb that I also do that. But I also spend, as you know, Geraldine, I spend an enormous amount of time uh, reading the tax law and re you know staying current and all that kind of stuff. And I know a lot of people are not willing to do that. So one of the reasons you sub-niche is to uh, really increase your focus and reduce the amount of time that you have to spend um, doing that kind of research because then you don't have to know everything about everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love that because I think it's easy to get caught up in the belief that there's a right niche and that you have to like make a smart choice and everything. But I think there's there's so much need for CPAs who are niched that it really, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter because that's too, that's a stretch too far. But if your niche is viable, just pick. And if you like it, you will gravitate toward it. You will learn simply because you're interested. You will deepen your expertise because you enjoy it. And the more you deepen your expertise, the more you enjoy it. And the more you will niche and the more value you will create. It's just so, it seems so arbitrary. I know for people who want to derive the answer by a solution, I get it. Trust me, I'm a linear thinker. I like solving problems with variables and X's. But this is arbitrary. You got to just pick. So okay. can I just add to that, though? I, I think it's actually easier than that. You know, I look at, I always think about, okay, in a perfect world, what would I do? Right? In a perfect world, what kind of client would I serve? What kind of industry would it be? Is, is there a sub-niche that I would look at? What is it that I'm most interested in? That, boy, if I could just do that, I'd be excited about just doing that. I mean, there, there are industries that I don't do at all. Okay, um, we don't we don't, we don't do cannabis industry. We just don't. There there are other industries we just don't really focus on much. They require too much technical expertise, and it's not mine. You know, it's certainly not ours in my my little CPA firm. Um, and and so I think it's look at what you'd like first, because what'll happen is is I find that um, clients will gravitate to your personality, to your style, to your, you know, what, what you want to focus on and how you want to focus on that. And why wouldn't you want those clients? And, and you, you, once, but you have to define that first and tell you define it. How's the client going to define it? Yeah, the client's not going to be able to tell at all. They can't. Okay, so I want to ask you about actual like packages and pricing and money and how big a real estate investor needs to be before it makes sense in a way that pencils for the CPA. Right. So does the CPA need to be, do they need to establish a kind of floor, if you will, mentally, that I, it doesn't make sense for me to take on clients with fewer than, I don't know, 10 rental properties or five rental properties or two or one? Where, like, beneath what level does it just not work? If, if I could just modify that, I, I'd actually look at at what level does it work? Because um, we have members in our network that they want the less than 10. That's that's actually a, a top end, not a bottom end. And that's okay because you, uh, we, I, have a, uh, I have a member that they only want independent contractors. You know, they'll, I mean, like my firm, we, we couldn't touch an independent contractor because, I mean, we charge more to pick up the phone than they're able to pay. But 
there are other CPAs that go, I just really like these people. I mean, here's the thing. It's not always about money either, right? And um, remember also, it could be about leverage. So, you know, this, this, the simpler work is also easier to leverage than the more complex work. So, you know, I always hear people saying, well, I want high net worth clients. I'm going, why? They're a pain in the butt. And I'm just kidding. But they, you can't make an assembly line out of high net worth clients. It's much, much more difficult to train other, C, uh, other staff members to handle those high net worth clients. I mean, there are certain clients that I still have not been able to hand off completely because they're so complex that I just don't, I just can't, even my business partner can't do that same type of work that I do. Well, what that means is now you're doing something that you're really good at, but you're not passionate about maybe, right? And so maybe why don't you do something that you're passionate about? And if that's, you know, somebody that's just starting out, we have members who just only handle just starting out people. If that's who you want to handle, handle those people and you can handle a lot of those people and you can make just as much money handling a lot of those people because they're simple um, compared to a few clients that are very high end, you know? How, question is, how much you, time do you want to spend in your business? Because you probably spend less time on the lower end clients as long as you're niched in that lower end clientele. But either, whatever you're going to do, you do need to pick, okay, what, what are my demographics? So I always look when I'm looking at niching, besides the industry, I'm looking at what are my demographics and what are my psychographics? In other words, what kind of what's the attitude of the person coming in? What's, you know, what's their intention coming in? What type of person do I want to work with? Because I'm at least at that age where I don't want to work with everybody. So I'm pretty picky. It's a bit of a takeaway. There's some scarcity there. If you say, well, I'm only going to work with this group, then people go, if, if you're really good at that group, people will want to kind of get into that group so that they can get in with you. Um, because what you want to do is you want to pull people in. You don't want to try to push at them. You want to pull them in. We call that pull marketing. And, um, you know, and then you educate those and you get very specific and boy, you're just going to attract however many people you want. Okay. So it sounds like there's not necessarily a minimum, even you can make it work at people who, with clients who are even just starting out one rental property, you know, first. Absolutely. Okay. One question that I have is how do real estate investors think of their portfolio? Do they track their size in terms of how many doors, how many properties, how much revenue? What's the metric they use? Interestingly enough, they track it mostly by doors. That, that it's, it's, it, uh, every time I hear real estate, I've got, I've got this many doors. Okay. I, I would prefer to check it by, I've got this much net revenue because I think gross revenue is irrelevant. It's net revenue. I find though, that most of them are looking at number of doors. And is there a natural progression or are there inflection points along the journey of a real estate investor where, you know, they start out and they're dipping their toe in the water and they've one or two, and then maybe they get up to four. And then all of a sudden, like there needs to be a business model pivot or change because they hit a certain ceiling. And if so, where are those inflection points along the way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, one inflection of point, of course, is how many Fannie Mae loans can you get, right? On a single family home, for example, you're limited by to how many Fannie Mae loans you can get. So then you have to change the way you're borrowing. And so that is an inflection point. It, it has to do with the borrowing um, more than it does just raw numbers. 
Um, the, the other thing is that you, they look at number of doors in the unit. So you'll get people who will, they might start with single families, they might go to plexes, and then they're starting going, well, if I go to multifamily, do I go to like 16 units or do I go to 160 units? They, they actually think that's a big jump from 16 to 160. I actually think the big jump is from a fourplex to, 106, to 16 is a bigger jump than a, four, than a 16 to 160. Because once you've got that many, why wouldn't you want to have an on-site property manager, which you can have with 160 units that you can't have with 16 units. So actually, the smaller properties are harder to manage than the bigger properties. Um, bigger properties are much easier to manage because you can put sometime, somebody full-time in there that reports directly to you and is actually your employee. Okay, so if a CPA is working with a real estate investor who might um, be on the trajectory that you just described, what is the CPA listening for and how can they, you know, how can they identify, hey, real estate investor, you've just acquired this and what tends to happen when you get to this inflection point is you're going to want to think this, but in fact, what you need to think is that. Well, here, here's the challenge that, <laughs> yeah, we kind of have to look inward, right? So we can't be talking to a client about something we don't know about. And we're talking to a client about systems. And do we have those, own, those systems built into our own firm? Okay, because we need to look at what are what I think we ought to be looking at. What's our inflection point for number of staff? What's our inflection point for number of clients? What's our inflection point for gross revenue? What's our inflection point for revenue per client? Right. So we have to look at those same things. If we're not examining those on our in our own business, it's pretty disingenuous to think that we can give advice to a client. I, I, for example, any tax strategy that I talk about, I have already done personally, every single one. I have already done it. And now if somebody brings me a tax strategy and says, what do you think of this? I'll say, I haven't done this. I don't know that. Here's what, here's how I would analyze it, but understand that I haven't done it. So I, I think that a lot of it is systems. And you know, that one of the challenges we have as CPAs is especially the smaller firms, is we tend to rely on personal oversight and direct oversight as opposed to having systems. And uh, the client, you know, they're going to get to a point where they're looking for, they're looking for systems help. And this is something where we can provide high value services to them um, if we understand it. But again, we're not going to understand unless we do it ourselves. Okay. I love it. Okay. So last question here as we close out, can you give us an example of like a classic case of a real estate or a real estate investor who has been working with a CPA comes to you and says, Hey, I think I want to work with you guys because you specialize in exactly this. What is a cookie cutter case that you see time and again, that you bring them on, you look through their financial statements and you provide a metric ton of value. What does that example sound like? I'll, I'll give you a really easy slam dunk. They're not doing cost segregation. Okay. So back to the I mean, top. That is so easy. You don't even have to do the work. You hire somebody else to do the cost segregation. They hire somebody else. Um, the, the, the return on investment on that cost segregation is normally enormous. And I, I have clients constantly. I mean, like this guy I was talking to yesterday, uh, I guarantee you there's two, one of two things, either, they're already involved in the real estate industry in some way and not doing personal investing in real estate, which is just this huge mistake, or they're investing in real estate, but they're not getting the full benefit of investing in real estate. And this is where you do, this is where the niche is so important because 
I, you know, people will tell me, well, you know, that's so aggressive. And I'm going, so I have a different view, if I can share, of what aggressive versus conservative means. I think conservative is doing something within your wheelhouse, something you, you know about. That's conservative. But the more you can learn, so if you can get deeper into a niche area, then you're going to be able to do a lot more without actually being with being more conservative and being less aggressive. I mean, I look at these cost segregations and I'm going, these are, this is a very conservative approach to me because I've got an engineer, professional engineer. They're going in, they're doing this work. I see what their work papers look like. I see what the report looks like. And I, you know, I'm seeing the pictures that they're taking. I'm seeing all of that. I'm going, okay, now I really know I can be comfortable that that is correct depreciation. And then I'll, I'll see a, you know, a client, they'll bring me their, their tax return and the, the CPA put 20% to land and 80% to building. And I'm going, I find that to be very aggressive from the standpoint that they've, there's been no due diligence done on that. How do you know it's 20? You, you probably pick 20% out of the air. How do you know it's 20%? It could be 40%. It could be 5%. Have you even looked at the, for example, have you looked at the uh, property tax assessment to look at, is there you know, an allocation there? And my guess is you probably haven't. If I see that 80-20, and I see it all the time, um, Geraldine, I see it so much. 20% land, 80% to bill, and I'm going, this is, this is a CPA that does not understand real estate or is too lazy um, to actually look at actual numbers. And for a um, a client who has, let's just say, I'm making this up here, four properties, four residential properties, and you do a cost segregation on that, how much money are we talking about potentially saving here? Oh, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I, I, I've seen cost segregations done on $100,000 homes that saved um, you know a ton of money. We, think, think of it this way. So take the cost of the property, multiply it by 25%. That's probably your first year depreciation deduction this year. Okay, for in the last five years. Okay, so if it's a $100,000 home, you're probably going to get a $25,000 bonus depreciation. Look at their interest rate. If their interest rate is 30%, 30% of uh, $25,000 is $7,500. That's their benefit. Okay, it's that simple. I mean, you, you, there really are rules of thumb here, Geraldine. And if you know real estate, you're going to know those rules of thumb. Obviously, you still have to do the cost segregation. Um, but $7,500 to somebody buying a $100,000 property, you remember that that's actually, they probably only put $20,000 down. So $7,500 uh, represents a large proportion of the cost, the down payment of that property, it's a huge amount. And think about this, you do do that three times, you can buy another property. Right, and up you go. I love it. If people wanna buy your book, when and where can they do that? They can do it right now. They can pre-order it at winwinwealthstrategy.com, winwinwealthstrategy.com, um, or winwinwealthstrategy.com slash bonuses if you wanna buy multiple copies of the book. So we actually have a lot of CPAs that are buying this book to give to their clients to say, see, the government wants you to do what I'm telling you to do. So what I, one of the things I love about this book is, what, no matter what, which one of the seven 
um, investments you're specializing in, no matter which one you're specializing in, whether it's real estate or business or energy, whatever it is, you can take that and say, see, this book shows just how much the government wants you to do this. So don't think this is tax avoidance or tax evasion. It's none of that. This is what the government wants you to do. You're just being active and boy, we could really help you with this and we can help you actually grow and, and do better. So uh, to me, it's a great marketing book for any CPA that's in a niche. I love it. And we will link to all of that in the show notes. Tom Wheelwright, it's always a pleasure to have you on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Geraldine. Once again, Tom is a wealth of information, and his book, The Win-Win Wealth Strategy, is now on sale. The link is in the show notes. If you're thinking of niching into real estate investors, that was a dose of backroom intel to mainline into your business. If you want even more intel, stop what you're doing and head over to GeraldineCarter.com to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to price your services, and how to sell outcomes so that you can be more profitable with less effort. That URL again is GeraldineCarter.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.